While the United States is still a relatively young country, it has its fair share of folktales and legends filled with adventurers and pioneers out in the wild frontier, some too fantastical to believe. But should we? Are there any truths behind these staples of Americana? Welcome to You Totally Made That Up. We are a bi-weekly history podcast that tells you the wildest, craziest, nuttiest stories from yesteryear. Ones that sound like somebody must have totally made them up. But they're all true. And we especially like the ones that have supernatural, paranormal, woo-woo elements. So those parts may only be true to the people who live them. We don't go for the lore says or the legend goes, though. We want dates and names and all the facts that we can find. And my name is Nash. And my name is Tiff. We are your hosts. This is our Thanksgiving episode, and for those of you outside the U.S., it's a holiday where we celebrate the first big meal the Pilgrims had way back when. That's basically it. It's a harvest festival sort of jam regarding their first harvest in the New World, but it's essentially an excuse to eat enormous amounts of food nowadays. Now, last year, our theme was things we were thankful for, and that was modern medicine, which morphed into talking about the history of cornflakes and Coca-Cola. So go check those out. They were really interesting. They both started out as treatments and medicines of a sort. It's called cesspools of woo, and it's a two-parter. But since 2020 has been such a crap fest of epic proportion, not a ton to be thankful for. A bright spot recently, though. Happy for that. But not a ton to be thankful for overall. So we thought we'd focus on something uniquely American, a la Americana, which is defined as, quote, related to the history, geography, folklore, and cultural heritage of the United States of America. Americana is heavily influenced by national identity, historical context, patriotism, and nostalgia. And because we like myth-busting here on occasion, if you haven't noticed, we thought we'd tackle some truths behind two famous American frontier folk tales. God damn it. You could do it. Oh, these um, guys, if you are new, I've had massive amounts of dental work done over the past few months and... F's are very problematic for me. So we're going to try that one more time. We thought we would tackle some truths behind two famous American frontier folktales, the stories of Johnny Appleseed and Davy Crockett. And because Tiff went first last time, I get to go first now. So here we go. I take you to Massachusetts, Lemonster, and on September 26, 1774, one John Chapman was born to Nathaniel Chapman and Elizabeth Simons. Unfortunately, two years later, Elizabeth died after childbirth when she had John's younger brother, Nate Jr., and also, unfortunately, Nathaniel was at war when it happened. He was in the Army. He had served as a Minuteman in the Battle of Concord and later on served in the Continental Army under future President, then-General, George Washington. Also interesting about his father... Contrary to most things we've heard in our stories, he actually waited longer than five minutes to hook up with somebody else. He remarried in 1780 to a woman named Lucy Cooley, and they went on to have 10 kids, God Almighty. So that's 13 kids total because John also had an older sister. This was obviously a busy and crowded household, and I wonder if that didn't contribute some to what is about to come up next. Fast forward, it's around 1792. John's 18, and he is itching to travel. 
Again, with that full house, I might be too. There's not a ton known about his early life, but several sources mention that he talks the now 11-year-old Nate Jr. to come traveling with him. And they go out west, and quote, the duo apparently lived a nomadic life until their father brought his large family west in 1805 and met up with them in Ohio. Just can't escape, ugh. Right? It's, it's following them. <laughs> it follows. But seems like John still didn't want to stay, because like Tiss said, it's... Imagine that. <laughs> right? Because it mentions that at this point, Nate Jr., who's now almost 30, was like, yeah, I'm going to stay here and work the farm with Dad. And one of my sources speculates that Nathaniel talked John into getting involved with being an orchardist because, you know, he's a farmer. He knew of what he spoke. But it's not traditional farming, so to speak. Not what springs to mind when you hear the word, like crops and animals or whatnot. This is specifically about fruit-bearing trees. Now, one place said that he had actually started up some tree nurseries when he and his brother had started west when they were going through Pennsylvania in Allegheny Valley around 1798 and that he kept planting as he went. But apparently it's documented that Nathaniel hooked him up with an apprenticeship under an orchardist named Mr. Crawford and that's how he got started. So don't know. Who cares? We do know, though, that by 1812, John was doing the orchard thing on his own. And if the nickname of Johnny Appleseed hadn't tipped you off, yes, we're talking apple trees. And here's where we're going to get into the differences between the folktale and reality. So let's just take this point by point, and that's how I'm going to tell you about the rest of his life. Quote, An idealized portrait of his life soon began to take shape, in which Johnny Appleseed served as a kindly, benign symbol of European settlers' conquest of the American continent. (laughs) Sure. Oh, so benign. So benign was the conquest, yes. (laughs) So the story started circulating within his lifetime, and quote, most of these focused on his wilderness skills and his remarkable physical endurance, which, yeah, accurate portrayal in that respect, as you'll see. And the biggest reason people started hearing about this Americana Idol, I thought that was funny, Americana (laughs) Idol, yeah. Could you imagine, like, the contest, like, it's like Kim, Paul Bunyan, (laughs) Daniel Boone, I don't know, all those people trying out on stage. Anyway, I digress. Okay. So, but the biggest reason people started hearing about him is due to an 1871 article in Harper's New Monthly Magazine written by a preacher-turned-journalist named W.D. Haley, and in it, he's basically relating stories about this John Chapman dude. So, he's the one that set up this framework, this tone. And then talking more modern times, in 1948, Disney put out this little cartoon musical called Melody Time, and he's in there along with various other characters, and it, quote, depicts Johnny Appleseed in Cinderella fashion surrounded by blue songbirds and a jolly guardian angel, and also, quote, emphasized his Christian faith, depicting him as striking out into the wilderness armed only with his Bible and a bag of apple seeds. The cartoon avoided mentioning that Chapman was a Swedenborgian and not a follower of a mainstream Christian denomination. Now, what they're referring to, that Swedenborgian denomination, is also called the New Church, and it was, quote, Influenced by the writings of scientist and Swedish Lutheran theologian Emanuel Swedenborg. According to Swedenborg, he received a new revelation from Christ in visions he experienced over a period of at least 25 years. So, red flag, red flag, big old fat red flag. And getting some cult vibes. Outright. <laughs> Continuing. 
He predicted in his writings that God would replace the traditional Christian church, establishing a new church that would worship Jesus Christ as God. The movement was founded on the belief that God explained the spiritual meaning of the Bible to Swedenborg to reveal the truth of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Swedenborg cited divine revelation for his writings, and his followers believed that he witnessed the last judgment in the spiritual world with the inauguration of the new church. Swedenborgianism actually faced a heresy trial in Sweden in 1768 against two dudes that were really hardcore promoting it, and, quote, the trial questioned whether Swedenborg's theological writings were consistent with Christian doctrine. A royal ordinance in 1770 declared that his writings were clearly mistaken and should not be taught. Swedenborg's clerical supporters were ordered to stop using his teachings, and customs officials were directed to impound his books and stop their circulation. Swedenborg begged the king for grace and protection in a letter from Amsterdam. A new investigation of him stalled and was ultimately dropped in 1778. So, you know, they were fringe, I guess we could say. And also, I've got, like, you said cult, yes, and I've also got some Mormonism, Scientology vibes coming off of it. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. I'm sure it was very benign, though. Oh, very benign, yes. (laughs) I mean, it was decently popular, because obviously it spread over to America. And there's a couple more details I'll tell you about this faith as we go. But on an aside, since I brought up Sweden, hey, Sweden, Australia has overtaken you in our Across the Pond top three listener groups. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I love Australia as well. And welcome to all y'all. But Sweden, it hurts my heart. It hurts me. Okay. So I couldn't find where and when he was exposed to this. But basically, Chapman considered himself an unofficial missionary of sorts. Quote, Chapman was a devout follower of the mystical teachings of the Swedish theologian, proselytizing and distributing Swedenborg's writings as he traveled. That's just what we need. (laughs) Right? And yeah, you heard me. There was some mysticism sprinkled in. So yeah, hot pass from Disney. All right. Probably the main thing about Johnny Appleseed that comes to mind is his appearance, that he was always in threadbare clothes and walked around barefoot and wore a pot on his head. There's some truth here. And some of these things are related to other bullet points I'm about to hit. But yes, these things are pretty much accurate. Quote, instead of a shirt, he usually wore a sack with holes for his head and arms. And on his feet were worn out shoes or no shoes at all. And true to his nickname, he carried a bag of apple seeds. You may ask why. Good question. And it's partly because he just didn't give a shit. He was out there roughing it. So why bother dressing nicely? And partly it was religion, like not being all fancy and being focused on your faith and being charitable, all that jazz. But there was another reason, and I'll get to that in a second. Kind of has to do with networking. But anyway, there are accounts of lots of people relating the same things about his appearance, some included in that Harper's article I mentioned, such as an 1806 account, which said about an Ohio settler meeting him, quote, Chapman had lashed two canoes together, filled one with apple seeds, and was paddling along the Ohio River. He was barefoot, dressed in rags, and wore a tin pot on his head as a hat. And they all kind of went like that in that same vein. I mean, there wasn't canoes every time, but the same basic components were always there. Okay. Next one, that he was an animal lover, right down to the insects. It's true. Later in his life, he became a vegetarian for one thing, and there are multiple stories about how he felt about animals and how they should be treated. One story is that he heard about a sickly horse that was going to be put down, so he buys the horse, he buys some grassy land, And he let the horse basically be free out there, just grazing and chilling to see if it would recover. And it does. 
He then gives the horse to a needy person, but only if they promised they would treat it well. Then there's a story about him freeing a wolf from a trap and tending to its wounded leg, and that the wolf kind of became his pet, followed him around for a while, and I assume dipping when it realized it would have to be a vegetarian. (laughs) Another one is that during a snowstorm, he made a campfire at the end of a hollowed out log and was going to take shelter inside it, only to discover that a bear and her cubs were already there. And, And, you know, first of all, stop right here. How massive was that tree? The cubs, I'll bite, but the mama? That just, okay, whatever. So the story goes on to say that he moved the fire to the opposite end of the tree and slept out in the snow because he didn't want to disturb them. I mean, were they hibernating? I just, I don't know. I assume so, or else he'd have been lunch. Yeah, that's a pretty lenient mama bear right there. <laughs> yeah, every story I've ever heard about, like, literally, I'm sure you, you've heard this. I'm sure the listeners have heard this. But if you're out in the woods, you know, you're hiking or whatever, and you see bear cubs, you turn back immediately. Do not keep going forward. Do not go near the bears. Nothing. Just get out of there. Mm-hmm. Because if mama sees you even remotely in the vicinity of her babies, she's going to go batshit. All right, so here's my favorite one. Henry Howe, who is an author that wrote a lot about Americana, wrote about the histories of several states. Through talking to people, he gets a story about Chapman, and here's a bit of it. Quote, One cool autumnal night, while lying by his campfire in the woods, he observed that the mosquitoes flew into the blaze and were burned. Johnny, who wore on his head a tin utensil, which answered both as a cap and a mush pot, filled it with water and quenched the fire, and afterwards remarked, God forbid that I should build a fire for my comfort that should be the means of destroying any of his creatures. And also, quote, To the rugged pioneers he encountered on his travels, Chapman's insistence on treating all animals with kindness, in keeping with the Swedenborgian doctrine that the life of religion is to do good, must have seemed very unusual. But look it, old Appleseed, he had his limits, and that limit was snakes because supposedly a rattler bit him. Now, I doubt this, because rattlesnake venom is not to be trifled with. I won't go down that road here, but my dad's a herpetologist, so trust me when I say I know what I'm talking about. What I wonder is if he got bit by a bull snake or a gopher snake, because they look similar in terms of markings, and they're about the same size, and they'll mimic rattlesnakes, put on a big show with posturing and hissing, and they'll vibrate their tail, because honestly, you know, all the rattlesnake sounds you'll hear on TV or whatever are are really pretty amplified. In my experience, it is not this maraca-type volume. (laughs) Like, they're not shaking it all over the place, around their head and everything. It's just kind of this back-and-forth deal. And so gopher snakes do the same thing. Anyway, he whacks the shit out of the snake, and he says that he actually backtracked to check on it, but he'd worked it over good. I mean, it it was dead as a doornail. And the Harper's article quotes him as saying, Poor fellow, he only just touched me when I, in the heat of my ungodly passion, put the heel of my scythe in him and went away. So, you know, okay, maybe it didn't actually bite him. Maybe it just tried to strike. I don't know. But I just, anyway. Mosquitoes, everything else is cool. But the snake that he probably stepped on because he wasn't paying attention. It's his own damn fault. With his bare feet. Yeah. Dumbass. Sure, she's on. Yeah, I don't care how tough your feet are. That comes up actually here again in a second, but I don't care. You need to wear shoes if you're out in the wilderness. All right, moving on. That he was big buddies with the Native Americans. Quote Many appreciated Chapman's nature friendly attitude as well as the fact that he was able to speak some of their languages. They also admired Chapman for his knowledge of medicinal plants. He understood how to derive treatments from natural ingredients such as mullein, 
motherwort, mayweed, and pennyroyal, and that, quote, it was commonly asserted that Chapman was trusted and respected by the Indians he encountered and even revered by them as a kind of white medicine man. Yeah, right. Okay, I'm sure he knew more about North American plants than did the inhabitants who had already been there, done that for a gazillion years. Thank you, white man, for educating us. I mean, good Lord. So in reality, turns out, not so much. Quote, Chapman's relationship with the Indians seems to have been based on mutual suspicion, as was typical for the time, and he recounted stories of having narrowly escaped being captured or otherwise harmed by them. And, you know, there are many Native American dialects, and I simply didn't have the time to look up the translations for fuck off, you weird old pot-wearing freak in all of them. <laughs> but I have to guess that I'm... I'm somewhere close to yeah. what the reaction probably was. Having said that, next on our list, that he was a welcome visitor in frontier homes. Now, why were these people letting him crash with them? I'll tell you in a minute. I mean, I'm sure some of the time it was people just being kind, but hang tight. In any event, these folks are where all the stories are coming from, who these journalists and authors have interviewed to get the scoop. And they said that he tells stories about his travels, but he was also playing missionary. And this, to me, sounds like absolute hell, having someone staying with you for who knows how long trying to push their religion on you. Quote, in addition to passing along news from the other places he visited, Chapman made sure to share his Swedenborgian beliefs during any stay. He'd pull out religious tracts and invite his host to listen to news right fresh from heaven. And then in that Harper's article, a woman is quoted saying about him that his voice had been strong and loud as the roar of wind and waves then soft and soothing as the balmy airs that quivered the morning glory leaves about his gray beard. Yeah, I'm sure that random pioneer woman spoke exactly like that. Uh-huh. It was very poetic. Uh-huh, right. I'm sure, you know, Farmer Brown and his wife <laughs> that are out in the sticks. You know, I mean, I'm just saying. Okay. A couple short ones. A not true one is that he only planted apples. No, he spread seeds of those aforementioned plants and herbs, and also one called dog fennel, because the dude that knew so much about medicinal shit thought it was a good one, but turns out dog fennel is, quote, now regarded as a noxious, invasive weed. Thanks, Johnny. Way to go, dude. Another not true one is that, on foot, he supposedly got all the way to California. He did not. He did go as far west as Illinois or Iowa. Still impressive, to be sure, but not California. And then, here's a true one, that he never had a family of his own. I don't know if he just didn't meet the right lady, or maybe he did and she just was not interested in his lifestyle, but his religion was fine with marriage, so that wasn't really it. But he thought he'd meet his true love after he died if God intended on him being with someone. Quote, Chapman did not believe in marriage and expected to be rewarded in heaven for his abstinence. Oh... Okay. I'm, ju I'm just telling you that chicks weren't into him. I'm just going to go out on the proverbial limb of the old apple tree. and just... Nobody wanted those dirty feet in their bed. That's no. basically what it came back to. He could have been as cute and sweet as ever. I don't know. You know, I mean, he's got that religious stuff going on, but you get him to shut up for a little bit, maybe. But no, he's got those dirty feet. No. Now, this is the biggest legend versus truth that we need to cover that he was not about money and was just randomly scattering seeds for whatever benevolent reason. Nope. Quote, Chapman planted strategically for profit. And hell yes, he did. 
A lot of this other stuff I already knew. This part that I'm about to get into, I had no idea. So hopefully you guys didn't know either and you'll find this interesting. Capitalism was apparently not a problem in his religion. So here's the deal on this. You need a little historical background. What was going on was that at the turn of the 19th century, a bunch of private companies and speculators, meaning venture capitalists, were buying up all these chunks of land in the Northwest Territories to sell to settlers. Now, in Ohio specifically, there was a company who said to the settlers, look it, if you commit to having a permanent homestead in the areas beyond the first established settlements, we'll grant you 100 acres of land. And to show that their homesteads were going to be permanent, they were required to plant 50 apple trees and 20 peach trees over the course of three years. Peach trees take, on average, three or four years to bear fruit if you planted a seed, which is what we're talking about here. We're not talking about saplings. But your average apple tree takes around eight to ten years. So yeah, definitely demonstrating their commitment. And our friend Johnny, he's a smart cookie. And he's not some rich venture capitalist or owner of an investment company, but he damn sure figured out a way to get a cut of the action. Quote, ever the savvy businessman, Chapman realized that if he could do the difficult work planting these orchards, he could turn them around for profit to incoming frontiersmen. Chapman would advance just ahead of the settlers, cultivating the orchards that he would sell them when they arrived, and then head to more undeveloped land. And did he do this by just tossing seeds out of his bag as he skipped along like some sort of deranged flower girl? No, no, no. And he also wasn't taking the time to plant big-ass orchards either, because hello, he couldn't keep ahead of the settlers if he did that. What he actually did was to plant nurseries. Then he'd put up fencing around them and pay somebody nearby to watch over it and return every year or two to check in on it and tend to it because trees grow slow and you don't have to watch over them constantly like you do plants or seasonal crops. So essentially what he's doing is claiming the land because he's following the rules. He is the one planting the seeds and in turn saying to these people, I get that you've already purchased the land from whomever back east, but I kind of already claim this. So why don't you pay me for my labor and what I've planted and I won't fight you for the land, which that's kind of shady to me at least. And this is just my understanding of it. Write in and let me know if I've gotten something backwards, but that's the best sense I could make of it. I'm with you. I'm with you on that interpretation. It makes sense. And you're right. It's smart and it's shady. Yeah, because I can't understand. Okay. At first, when I read it, it sounded like the investment that, you know, the rich folks were giving them 100 acres, but that doesn't make sense. It, how would they make a profit? That's what I don't, that's what was left out. So, put, okay, put it this way. Let's say the investment people did give them 100 acres and say, to prove to us that you're going to stay on it, plant all these trees. Okay. What was left out, and literally, and I have a good chunk of sources, but nothing anywhere that I read, it didn't tell me what they got out of it. Mm -hmm. And I, so that's why I'm like, did they already pay? Maybe did they cut them a deal or something? I don't understand what the investment people were getting out of it. So that's why I assume that these people did pay for the land, but I don't understand then if they did pay for it, why the rich people would be like, but you got to prove to us that you're going to stay. Mm -hmm. Like, why would they care if they already had their money? That's what I'm saying. I feel like I've gotten something twisted somewhere or I'm not tracking somehow. And so the, therefore, the way it makes sense to me is that they paid for it, but then Chapman beat them there to it and already planted the trees and kind of put on this, oh, shucks, is this your land? Oh, golly gee. Well, how about you just pay me for what I did? 
to me, that's what makes the most sense. But okay, moving on. In addition, he sold seeds to the people who were already there and trying to get settled and get things planted. And one of my sources said that he sold each seed for about six to seven cents a piece. But Jesus, really? That seems steep. Really steep. Yeah, he's making some money. Uh Uh-huh. I mean, maybe they meant a little bag. I, I genuinely don't know. But, and this is sweet, above all, even though he was trying to turn a profit, seems like he was a kind dude. Because if the family he approached about buying honestly couldn't afford seeds or to pay him for what he'd gotten going on the land that they were coming to live on, he'd give them more seeds for free, sometimes slipping them some extra cash, or he'd agree to barter, like he would accept their old clothes, which explains his whole threadbare appearance thing. And going back to one of the myths that we keep talking about his feet, I hate feet, by the way. I hate my feet. I hate your feet. I hate their feet. I hate everybody's feet. I hate feet. So this is just, ugh. this whole thing is so, do I. It's so gross to me. So gross. Yeah. Ugh. So going back to that myth about him being barefoot, he actually wasn't all the time. He did wear shoes. And one of my sources said that he had, on several occasions, given his shoes to someone in a family who needed them. And I thought that this was funny. Quote, of course, this wasn't the sacrifice it might have been for another person. Chapman's feet were allegedly so tough that he could stick needles into his soles without any ill effects. A trick he used to entertain children. Oh, that's gross. No. We've reached a new level of gross. So yeah, that's the guy crashing on your sofa, wearing a pot on his head and talking about the Lord and sticking needles into his feet. But you got some seeds out of it. Yay. Okay, okay. So great. But why apples? What was the deal with the apples? Why apple trees, I mean. Because, yeah, the time commitment. But there's other trees to plant. Like I said, peach trees. You're already committing to several years with those. But So why apples specifically? Well, the answer is hard cider. Quote, Up until Prohibition, an apple grown in America was far less likely to be eaten than to wind up in a barrel of cider. In rural areas, cider took the place of not only wine and beer, but of coffee, tea, juice, and even water. And why? Because water was nasty. It wasn't sanitary. Not even a little bit. All right, yeah. All kinds of little boogers, you know, bacteria and such, are swimming around in there and can make you very, very sick. So, cider it was. One author described frontier life at the time as, quote, being lived through an alcoholic haze. Transplanted New Englanders on the frontier drank a reported 10.52 ounces of hard cider per day. Y'all. I mean, y'all, holy shit snacks. Like, I get that your tolerance will strengthen over time, but initially, how did they manage to get anything done? It blows (laughs) my mind. Anyway, while it was known how to get apple trees to produce the kind we just take a bite of and the kind that we cook with, that wasn't Chapman's game. He was purposefully planting the type of seeds to kick out cider apples. And basically, they're just super duper tart and inedible. Their nickname was spitters, because that's what you did if you tried to eat one. You just immediately spit it back out. Cute. Matter of fact, famed naturalist and writer Henry David Thoreau said that these apples tasted, quote, sour enough to set a squirrel's teeth on edge. I love it. (laughs) So what Chapman did was he'd gather up the discarded seeds from cider mills, because, you know, they're coring the apples before they're pressing, so... They're tossing the cores and all the seeds are still in the cores. Okay. And so his overhead was just non-existent. 
But again, this type of apple was ideal for the settlers, so nobody's complaining. And if they wanted to graft later to make trees for edible apples, they could. And a tiny bit of science here. Apples are heterozygous, so when you plant seeds from a given fruit, like say you've just stumbled upon the best Golden Delicious or Granny Smith or my personal favorite, a Fuji, and you think, yes, more please, and save the seeds and plant them, the resulting tree isn't necessarily going to kick out the same thing. If you want to replicate the awesomeness, you've got to graft a branch into a seedling. And it's harder to do versus just planting a seed. It just depends on your end game, what you're going after. But back to the hard cider, and I had mentioned tolerance earlier. So as you can imagine, even though the point was to have something cleaner than nasty water to drink, that doesn't mean that people weren't getting addicted. You're tearing through your apple supply like crazy, and so what to do? And we're digressing a touch, but I have to tell you about something, which is Applejack. I love this. The title of the article of one of my sources is Applejack, for when hard cider just isn't strong enough. Because you see, my friends, hard cider only has about 4 to 6% alcohol content, while Applejack, 30%, baby. Yowza. People often disappoint me, but sometimes their ingenuity really impresses me. So around 1775, hard cider was, quote, routinely transmogrified into the stunningly stronger Applejack by simply setting a pan of it on the back porch in the frigid days of winter. The water in the cider would freeze, and as ice was removed from the cider container, the alcohol in the brew became increasingly concentrated. (laughs) Isn't that genius? Yeah. This process of freeze distilling, which relies on the fact that alcohol freezes at a lower temperature than water, was known as jacking, hence the cozy name Applejack. And bonus, once it's converted, it shrinks down to about a tenth of its original volume. So not only did you now need less to get buzzed, it's also taking up less space. And get buzzed, they did. (laughs) A nickname for Applejack was Essence of Lockjaw. And the effect Applejack had was called Apple Palsy. (laughs) And this is great. In the New York Times on April 10th, 1894, it was written that someone under the influence of Applejack is, quote, capable of blowing up a whole town with dynamite and of reciting original poetry to every surviving inhabitant. Beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that great? That's intense. And you can also refine Applejack down to an apple brandy. But basically, what Applejack was, was moonshine. And I have enjoyed homemade flavored moonshine straight out of a glass canning jar on occasion. The lime-steeped kind is especially nice. It reminded me of just a really stout gin and tonic. True moonshine, by the way, is technically illegal. You know, I'm such a rebel. But by true, I mean whipping it up at your house in your basement with a still, like back in the day. And illegal in the sense that you're operating a business and not paying taxes. Like, it's not a big distillery company thing. But anyway, if you want some Applejack cocktail recipes, check out the National Geographic source and show notes. They include a good handful. What I'm trying to say is that this humble, man-of-the-earth folk hero of ours was a capitalist and an enabler of alcoholism. And you're just not going to find that in the kitty books or the Disney flicks. Definitely not. Oh, my God. So, all right, let's wrap this up. Best I can tell, he died of old age at around 70, but nobody can agree on his exact date of death. So we're just going to go with March 18th, 1845, though we know he passed in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And said the Fort Wayne Sentinel, quote, his death was quite sudden. He was seen on our streets a day or two previous. 
And here's a snippet from one obituary. Many of our citizens will remember this eccentric individual as he sauntered through town eating his dry rusk and cold meat and freely conversing on the mysteries of his religious faith and notwithstanding his apparent poverty, was reputed to be in good circumstances. Yeah, he was. Yeah, I bet. (laughs) Oh, yeah, he was. The exact location of his grave was disputed and maybe still is by some. But the Johnny Appleseed Commission Council of the city of Fort Wayne notes, quote, As a part of the celebration of Indiana's 100th birthday in 1916, an iron fence was placed in the Archer Graveyard by the Horticultural Society of Indiana, setting off the grave of Johnny Appleseed. At that time, there were men living who had attended the funeral of Johnny Appleseed. Direct and accurate evidence was available then. There was little or no reason for them to make a mistake about the location of this grave, and they located the grave in the Archer Burying Ground. So, like I say, they're pretty confident, but some places do still say that it's never been located. Having said that, along the St. Joseph River in Fort Wayne, in a park, there is a gravestone, and I'll put a picture in show notes. It reads, Johnny Appleseed, parentheses, John Chapman. He lived for others, which I think that's sweet. I mean, he kind of did. Kind of. So, yeah, a little bit. He was there. I think he did, but he was like, I kind of like him because he, he's a good-hearted dude. But on the other hand, he's like, I have to live. I'm going to make a buck. So, <laughs> Yeah. He kind of combined his love of nature and not having to be totally stuck in poverty, you know? So I, I kind of like the dude, I'll be honest. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I can see some, there's some goodness there. Definitely not what we were sold as children. At all. No, no, no. So at the time of his death, he had claimed to around 1,200 acres. Wowza. He left it to his sister, which included nurseries and plots in Indiana and Ohio. A financial panic hit in 1837, and the price of trees dropped to two or three cents from the roughly six and a quarter cents they usually were. See what I mean? Him selling the seeds for what he did? Mm-hmm. A guaranteed tree versus a seed that you don't know if it'll, you know, if, if you're going to pull it off or not. I don't know. Anyway. A lot of the land got taken to pay for taxes. Then litigation over what? It didn't mention, but litigation ate up the rest. And then prohibition. And by the way, for those who don't know, that's what made alcohol illegal in the United States starting in 1920. It comes along and wrecks things even worse. Quote, Chapman had become an American folk hero, but this didn't stop the axes of FBI agents who mercilessly tore down orchards to prevent the making of homemade hooch. But there is one known to have survived, and it's in Nova, Ohio. The tree is 176 years old, and it now grows, while not the type of apples you would take a bite into, they're pleasantly tart green apples that are the type good for baking pies and applesauce, and yes, can still be used for homemade cider. The bottom line is that John Chapman made a major impact on two fronts. First, he quotes, forever changed the apples of America. And that's said because of the whole grafting versus seeding thing we talked about. Continuing, by foregoing grafting, Johnny created the conditions for apple trees to adapt and thrive in their new world home. It was the seeds and the cider that gave the apple the opportunity to discover by trial and error the precise combination of traits required to prosper in the new world. From Chapman's vast planting of nameless cider apple seeds came some of the great American cultivars of the 19th century. And they were listing things like the Golden Delicious, 
just all those ones that I mentioned earlier, the Granny Smith, etc. And they all kind of evolved from all of that planting and then replanting the seeds and then the different things coming out of it. Because as said, that's what happens when you only do the seeds. You're going to get a slight variation every time. And then once you hit the variation you like, that's when you need to start grafting from it to replicate that specifically. But otherwise, have at it. Keep planting seeds and seeing what happens. But I mean, we could live without a ton of apple varieties. So probably more important is the second thing. And yes, related because cider was tied to survival, but he inadvertently helped build up the U.S. He helped the Western frontier get settled in a more expedient manner than it otherwise would have. As quote, Chapman paved the way for countless frontiersmen to settle new land around his orchards. So that's his legacy. He was more than just an eccentric environmentalist planting trees everywhere. It was much more complex than that. He played a not insignificant role in getting the country to where we are. And so that is your story of the man behind the legend of Johnny Appleseed, the admittedly kind of strange, but also kind of brilliant John Chapman. Wow. I am enlightened. As was I. As was I. <laughs> you know, I can't eat apples because I have an allergic reaction. Are you serious? What happens? Do you just swell up and can't breathe? Just, I say. Listen to me. Just. Just. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. My gums, uh, my throat, like my skin, I get all itchy and blotchy. And Is it pectin? I don't know. I haven't bothered going and getting tested. I just, you know, I just deal with it. <laughs> And all right, we're going to have a Texas speech guy come in here because I'm I just because I did not know this about you. So this is not scripted. Let's see if I'm right. Is pectin the most commonly what people are most commonly allergic to in apples? You know what, though? Cyanide, man, that would like if you're allergic to apples, I bet you could just like walk by cyanide and drop dead because, you know, cyanide and apple seeds. Oh, go me. How exciting. <laughs> well, anybody out there looking to murder Tim? <laughs> All right. But that's so sad. You can't have apple pie and stuff. I still do. Oh, do you? Yeah. I have the same reaction to avocados, but fuck if I'm going to give up guacamole. Wait a minute. So that is a seed thing. I might be totally off base about the pectin. Now I'm going to have to cross-reference apples and avocados. Diagnose me. Is it all like pears? It is. Mm -hmm. These are all so far. You've listed fruits with seeds in the middle. Uh huh. That, I, that's probably why I don't like fruit. I I prefer vegetables to fruit. Does a peach do it to you? Maybe. Don't you know. don't know. It's been a while. It's been a while. I just wonder because now I'm thinking: Is there a difference from a pit? Should I experiment? <laughs> Should I go? <laughs> As long as you have Benadryl right beside you, I mean. Sweet Lord, Nash was wrong. Well, sort of. There is such a thing as pectin allergy, but it is more associated with nuts, and results in symptoms similar to asthma. Tiff's allergy likely has to do with the pollen, specifically birch pollen. This would relate to apples, cherries, peaches, pears, and plums, to list a few. The good news is, people can usually eat them as long as they are cooked, because the proteins get wrecked by the heat, and the immune system won't recognize it. Nash did not look up the avocado thing because she is lazy, and besides, 
Tiff will not stop eating guacamole anyhow. But yeah. So, thank goodness Johnny didn't have that problem. Way to bring it back around. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) All right, tell your story. I've made notes here, and I'll look it up. Maybe I'll figure out what's wrong with you, or I may never tell you. Let me be surprised one day, depending on what I'm eating. Yeah. Hey, this is Sasha and Courtney from the podcast Spoop Hour. We are a paranormal comedy podcast hosted by two certified Halloweenies who laugh through our fear of literally everything. 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 (laughs) You can find us on the internet at Spoop Hour, S-P-O-O-P-H-O-U-R, on Instagram and Twitter, or you can reach out to us via email, spoophour at gmail.com, where you can share any creepy happenings that have happened to you or people you know or things that you've heard down the grapevine. Spoop line, am I right, ladies? Oh, the spoop line. So come get ghosted with us. Pee your pants because of cryptids. Just have a grand old time. It's fun. All right. So I get to talk about Davy Crockett. And I'm going to be straight up with you guys. I forgot he was an actual person. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know what? I get him and Daniel Boone for whatever reason in my head. I get them backwards. Yeah. Always have. You know, and that's probably not surprising because I'm definitely the, you know, kind of flightier of the two of us. But yeah, I totally forgot that he was an actual person and not just like a Disney character. Because, of course, as soon as we start talking about this, all I'm hearing in my head for the past couple of weeks has just been Davy, Davy Crockett. It has been on a loop and now you're all going to suffer with me. Okay. I'm going to say it's a geographical thing because I'm sure that there are some people who are like, fuck yeah, Davy Crockett, you know, but. <laughs> like Texas. Yeah. <laughs> Texas right now. I don't know how many listeners we have in Texas because uh, I can't, you know, I don't, other than, than Sweden's location in the ranks, clearly. I don't have our demo memorized, mm-hmm. but uh, Texas and New Mexico and all y'all, we, but particularly Texas, because I do know, I do remember this part of his story. So that's why I know what's coming in that respect. Texas, we apologize. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I should start off with apologizing because this was new to me. This is all new to me. So I did my best. <laughs> so don't be too, don't be too hard on me. Let's find out who the man is behind the legend. David Crockett was born August 17th, 1786, more commonly known as Davy, D-A-V-Y, not to be confused with Davy, D-A-V-E-Y, Crockett, who was a baseball player. I'm not talking about that guy. I'm talking about Davy. He was born in an unofficial state known at the time as Franklin, which was close to the Nolichucky River. I'm already worried about mispronouncing things. <laughs> I had to look up lemon whatever, because lemon... What did I say? Lemon, lemon monster. No. See, shit. I already forgot the name of the town. But anyway, it's spelled Leo, Leo Minster or something like that. And that's, it's Lemonster or something. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. Look, sometimes we look shit up. Sometimes we don't. It's part of our charm. Yeah. I'm just sounding it out. Okay. And it's near the community of Limestone. That area had declared independence and was trying for statehood. And that eventually failed. It was reclaimed by North Carolina and then eventually became part of Northeastern Tennessee. So life for young Davy was not easy at all. His father really struggled to provide for the family and they moved every couple years. 
They went from Lick Creek to Cove Creek to Mossy Creek until they finally ended up in Morristown. At the age of 12, Davy found himself as an indentured servant to help pay off the family debts. In that year, in 1798, he was hired out to Jacob Seiler to help drive a herd of cattle to Rockbridge County, Virginia. And then Seiler tried to keep David by force after the job was completed, but he escaped at night by walking seven miles in two hours through knee-deep snow. And I can't help but think that this is the start of the, back when I was your age, <laughs> I had to go uphill both ways. Yeah, that all started because of Davy, I think, escaping as a 12-year-old from indentured servitude. Yikes. Now, at the age of 13, he finally got to go to school. And he found out that it wasn't really his thing for a few reasons, but a big one was that he got bullied. He did get tired of getting picked on, so he went with the whole kind of jail yard tactic of going after and taking down the biggest, baddest motherfucker that you could find. <laughs> he ambushed the bully and, quote, set on him like a wildcat. Now I could hear, you've seen the movie Talladega Nights, right? Yes, love it. Classic. All I hear is like those little boys where he's like, I'll jump on you like a spider monkey. <laughs> I'm <just laughs> imagining that happening. Yeah, um, I need to rewatch that because I just, they're sweet little baby Jesus, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that was like all I heard when I read that line. Sit on him like a wildcat. Anyways. Davy knew that he was going to be in trouble after this, and he ended up skipping school to try to avoid getting in said trouble. And then finally, he just ran away from home to avoid consequences altogether, calling it a strategic withdrawal. Love it. While on this little walkabout, he worked on various kettle drives and took on apprenticeships to help himself get by. In 1802, he finally made his way back home, maybe to finally accept the uh, ass whooping that he was meant to get the first time around. But when he came back, he found that his family was again in debt and ended up working off the debt for his father again. And after this, he stuck around for a little bit after things were taken care of, working for his father's landlord. It seemed like Davy just kind of had a bug up his ass. <laughs> Everything that I read, it was like he never stayed still. He never settled. He just was constantly busy. It was exhausting. But first, he was really busy just kind of falling in love. First, he fell in love with his employer's niece, and this girl was engaged to be married to the employer's son, so that didn't work out so well for him. But then he fell in love with somebody who was in the wedding party for that marriage, and he talked her into agreeing to marry him, but then she decided to just kind of fuck off with some other guy that she ended up engaged to instead. Finally, he met Polly Finley, and after a few disagreements with her mother and father about allowing them to marry, the family relented and they were married on August 12th, 1806. They ended up having three children before Polly died in early of 1815. The summer of that same year, Davy nearly died from malaria and actually was reported dead and surprised his family with his resurrection. And then at the end of that year, he married a widow named Elizabeth. She already had two kids of her own, and they ended up adding three more kids to this bunch. His last daughter was born in 1821. So what did he do when he wasn't busy chasing around this giant gaggle of children? Well, jumping back to 1813, there was a territorial war between several Native American Indian tribes. On one side of this, we had the Choctaw, the Cherokee, and the United States government. On the other side, we had British traders, the Spanish government, and the Creek Indian tribe. So this was a battle over trading routes and territory battles because, shockingly, 
I say with heavy sarcasm, the United States government wanted to move further into the Native American territory. The Creeks, known as the Red Stick Creeks, were on the opposing side of the United States government, and they attacked one of their forts with the intention of eliminating the opposing tribe there and taking it over. While attacking, it was just kind of a free-for-all as far as killing. And the deaths totaled between four and 500 and included men, women, and children. When news of this spread, it drew many, many men to volunteer for the American militia, and this included Davy. And on September 20th, 1813, he goes and he joins the fight. He spends his time trying to ferret out some of the British-trained Indians in the Florida swamps. And then he ends up going and spending the rest of his time hunting to try and feed his fellow militiamen. And he was like, huh, this kind of feels more right than all the murdering. (laughs) And so he ends his service on December 24th, 1813. In 1817, he was living with his family in Lawrence County in Tennessee, and he was appointed justice of the peace, meaning he could administer oaths, perform marriages, and act as a judge for minor court cases. Then he was also elected to the position of lieutenant colonel for the 57th Regiment of the Tennessee Militia. And if that didn't keep him busy enough, he was also involved in several local private businesses. After two years, in 1819, he did step down from the two assignments. But then by 1821, again, he got a little jittery. He ran and he won his election for the Tennessee General Assembly, which is a state government position. From what I've read, while he was a legislator, he was really supportive of providing tax relief for the impoverished families in the state. And then in 1823, he ran for election again, and he won again, this time serving a new set of counties. In the next set of elections that came around, he decided to try for a spot with the federal government and ran for a seat in the House of Representatives. He lost, but he was encouraged to try again, and he ended up winning that next election and serving a term from 1827 to 1829. Now, he had posted his stances against the then-president, John Quincy Adams. And here's a fun little fact. John Quincy Adams did not attend his successor's inauguration. One of just a few presidents. <laughs> has not or will not do that. Hmm. Huh. He also had a stance against the cotton tariff and continued to fight for land titles for the impoverished members of his district. He ended up winning his next term from 1829 to 1831 as well. Now, during his second term, he did have a few notable incidents, I guess we'll call them. First, he introduced a resolution to abolish the United States Military Academy at West Point because he thought that it was public money going to benefit the sons of wealthy men. He also spoke out against Congress giving $100,000 to the widow of Stephen Decatur, who was a naval hero in the Revolutionary War. And he also opposed Andrew Jackson's 1830 Indian Removal Act and he was the only member of the Tennessee delegation to vote against it. Cherokee Chief John Ross ended up sending him a letter expressing thanks for Crockett's vote. He lost the next election, largely due to his stance against the Indian Removal Act. So here's the deal with that. It's awful. It's really terrible. The law allowed the president to, quote, negotiate with Southern Native American tribes for their removal to federal territory west of the Mississippi River in exchange for a white settlement on their ancestral lands. So this is what led to what's widely known as the Trail of Tears, when American Indians were forcibly removed from their lands because white people were going to live there, and so many of them died as they were relocated. A number of tribes did not end up leaving peacefully. This ended up leading to the Second Seminole War, 
The government did allow them to remain in Florida after that, but their numbers were far diminished. So basically at the end of this, history would end up on Davy's side, but at that point in time, a lot of people disagreed with him. He did end up getting elected again to the House of Representatives from 1833 to 1835. And, you know, he tried. He really wanted to level things out for the poor farmer pioneers who worked the land that they didn't own and the landowners and landlords who made all the profit from those workers and took advantage. You know, I mean, he was very loud. He stood on the side of the poor, but all in all, he was not a successful politician and none of his bills ever got passed. He ended up finishing his political career with kind of a great quote. (laughs) I told the people of my district that I would serve them as faithfully as I had done, but if not, they might go to hell and I would go to Texas. That is fantastic. That is fantastic. So the deal with that quote, because I was like, what the hell is this dude's problem? Just being like, fuck off, I'm going to Texas. Is that he swore that he would go to Texas if Martin Van Buren won the presidential election. And he decided that he needed to find something new. You know, I mean, he was, he wanted to be a pioneer. He wanted to explore. He was going to go and check out this new land and these new opportunities that were available. And then he was going to bring his family. That was his plan. So he goes off to Texas intent to explore. He leaves on November 1st, 1835 with three companions. He got to Texas and on January 14th, 1836, ends up signing an oath of allegiance to the provisional government there. Quote, Crockett and Patton signed the oath of allegiance before Judge John Forbes to the provisional government of Texas for six months. I have taken the oath of government and have enrolled my name as a volunteer and will set out for the Rio Grande in a few days with the volunteers from the United States. Each man was promised about 4,600 acres of land as payment. Now, from what I read, it sounded like he was almost signing just kind of a terms and conditions agreement, just kind of like, yeah, 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 okay, and not really thinking that he would ever need to serve. So what was going on in Texas at the time is that there was a split among the Americans that were there. There were those who supported Andrew Jackson and his administration and those who were opposed. And Crockett, as we know from earlier, did not fall into the Jackson camp. And so he sided with those who disregarded the orders to withdraw from the Alamo. So here we go. Texas was not a state. It was still being explored and colonized. And at this point was actually Mexican Texas because this region had gained independence from Spain in 1821. Now, white colonists are flooding the region as they try to find new lands for their plantations and avoid the issues and the regulations within the actual, you know, the United States at the time. It got to the point that white American settlers outnumbered the Mexican residents by a good margin, and this caused a lot of disruption, especially with the stance of the Mexican government on slavery. They had actually abolished it, and the tendency of the white colonists to use the land and indentured servitude, or, you know, just slavery with a twist, to get around the abolition of slavery within that territory. This all builds, and it builds, and it builds until we get to the point that there's talk of a Texan revolution. And now we've got Davy there. Now we know what he was walking into, and Crockett arrives at the Alamo Mission in San Antonio on February 8th. By the end of that month, the Mexican army had arrived and initiated the first siege on the location. They were trying to get the land back because the Texan army had seized it initially on December 10th, the year before. So this is just like a back and forth fighting for this land. 
The Texans were very outnumbered, as in there were 150 to 200 of them at the Alamo compared to a couple thousand members of the Mexican army that surrounded them. So they abandoned the surrounding town and took refuge within the mission. And for about two weeks, they picked off members of the Mexican army who were just quickly replaced with reinforcements. Davy and a few of the others were essentially snipers <laughs> there, shooting some of the soldiers at like distances of 200 yards. And Crockett kept a journal, and the day before his death, he simply wrote, March 5th, pop, 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 bomb, 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 throughout the day. No time for memorandums now. Go ahead. Liberty and independence forever. And according to one source, before daybreak on March 6th, the citadel of the Alamo was assaulted by the whole Mexican army, who were numbered at about 3,000 men at that point. You know, they swarmed into the fortress, and this battle was fought up until daylight. We know that Davy died on March 6th, but there's some controversy as to whether he died during the battle while fighting or after the battle as one of the last to surrender and be executed. Now, nobody be mad at me, okay? I'm just telling you what I found while researching because this is like a thing for some people. One source writes, only six of the garrison then remained alive. They were surrounded and they surrendered. Colonel Crockett was one. He at the time stood alone in an angle of the fort like a lion at bay. His eyes flashed fire, his shattered rifle in his right hand, and in his left a gleaming bowie knife streaming with blood. His face was covered in blood flowing from a deep gash across his forehead. About 20 Mexicans dead and dying were lying at his feet. So at this point, he's captured. He's brought to the general who gave no quarter. And so again, quoting, Immediately, several Mexicans commenced plunging their swords into the bosoms of the captives. Crockett, entirely unarmed, sprang like a tiger at the throat of Santa Ana. But before he could reach him, a dozen swords were sheathed in his heart, and he fell without a word or a groan. But there still remained upon his brow the frown of indignation, and his lip was curled with a smile of defiance and scorn. I mean, that sounds epic. That's like a Lord of the Rings kind of death. <laughs> it's very serious. Very much so. I was like, you say Lord of the Rings, that's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. <laughs> so his remains were piled with several other bodies and then they were burned. The ashes were placed into a coffin, but the resting place is not known. It seems to have just kind of been stuck somewhere. There is a coffin and a stone that says the names, but that's again, debated as to whether or not the actual ashes and what's in there would be Davy. And I just want to know, why didn't he hide in the basement? I, I was hoping you would bring this up. <laughs> I tell you what, let's hold all questions till the end of the tour, okay? <laughs> There's no basement at the Alamo. If you're listening and you haven't seen Pee-wee's Big Adventure, I, I, don't, I don't know what to say. It's it's a must watch. It's one of my absolute favorite movies of all time. It's the best. Now that's a couple episodes in a row where we've brought up Pee Wee Herman. Oh yeah. He's our <laughs> He might need to be on the bingo. Tiff had a great idea about having a you totally made that up bingo. And so we've got a list going and I, we might have to add <laughs> Pee Wee Herman. Pee Wee Herman slash Paul Rubens. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see how this goes. All right, so there's your very slim kind of biography of Davy Crockett. And he lived a life, that's for sure. But what made it significant enough to become a legend? I'm going through this and I'm like, okay, all right, politician, soldier. But how does he stand out? Like, where did these tall tales come from? And what are some of these stories? 
Now, there was a Time Magazine article that I came across that said, probably Alamo is the reason we remember him today because it's a hugely important event, both in the history and mythology of Texas. And Crockett was, at the time, the most famous person there. But why was he famous before the Alamo? Well, he seemed to catch on kind of early in life that a good PR campaign is important. He didn't necessarily even stand out much in his day, but he gained some fame which multiplied and ended up becoming famous just for being famous. Kind of like an MTV celebrity. You know, I mean, people in the real world weren't there because they did anything, but I'm sure you know some of their names. It's just, it was kind of like that. He was a celebrity before it became a thing. So he cultivated a specific image and he really liked this image of himself as kind of a wild man. He didn't really like the official portraits that were made for him as he was, you know, working in the House of Representatives because he said they made him look a sort of cross between a clean-shirted member of Congress and a Methodist preacher. So before posing for one of his official portraits, he asked the artist to portray him rallying dogs during a bear hunt, and he purchased outdoorsy props, insisted that he be shown holding up his cap ready to give a shout that raised the whole neighborhood. He was an expert marksman. There is no lie there. That is a you know very important part of his mythology, and he was a really good hunter. I mean, the family relied on the land a lot to survive. They often hunted and sold bear skins, meat, and fat. But then one seven-month stretch that spanned from 1825 to 1826, he allegedly took down 105 bears, like 47 in one month alone. There was, it, there was a repeated story that he once killed a bear in pitch black darkness by stabbing it in the heart with a butcher knife, which I, I couldn't. Uh-uh. <laughs> I'm going to give that one a no. Maybe he found the Johnny Appleseed bear and she just was too chill. Yeah, was it hibernating? These are all important questions. Or it was just a total accident. I mm -hmm. mean, you know. Yeah. How big was this bear? I mean, if it was a little bear, maybe. Now, as far as his marksmanship goes, there are a few stories that people can reference. One was a shooting competition where he was accused of winning on a chance shot. And he was like, hell no, I will shoot like that all the time. He shot it again. And everyone believed that he missed because they couldn't find another bullet hole. When he went and looked for himself, he had actually struck his own bullet. Very Robin Hood of him. And then the show Mythbusters, love that show so much. They took on another one of his legends, which was that he could fire a shot from his musket and split the bullet on the blade of an axe stuck in a tree 40 yards away. Those are lots of very specific kind of circumstances, but we know that he could snipe soldiers from far away. We know that he was an excellent shot, just basically from a young age, he had to use a gun and had to provide. And the team at Mythbusters did end up confirming the myth, as long as a person shooting was a practice marksman, which we know Davy was. So by the time he was in Congress and speaking out against Andrew Jackson and attempting to pass land title bills, he was actually the subject of two publications. People had heard about his fighting, his hunting, and his shooting. Did I mention that he named his guns Betsy? I love it. There was Betsy, Old Betsy, and Fancy Betsy. Fancy Betsy. Yeah, Fancy Betsy. She was a gold and silver plated gun that he was given as a gift. He wasn't the first backwoods politician. Backwoods, I don't, I don't like that, but whatever. That's what was in the quote. To be noticed or written about. Portrayals of American frontiersmen as boastful, half-horse, half-alligator types predated Crockett's arrival in Washington for many years. 
yet Crockett's backwoods style caught the attention of the press, which painted him as either a charming, forthright child of nature or a crude, ignorant buffoon, depending on the politics of the newspaper. A mixture of this depiction carried over into a popular play from James Kirk Paulding called The Lion of the West. This play opened up in New York City on April 25th, 1831, and it focused on the hero Colonel Nimrod Wildfire. There's a name for you. I was about <laughs> to say Nimrod Wildfire. <laughs> Nimrod Wildfire. Now, this is before Nimrod was like taken over by Looney Tunes to mean, you know, an idiot. And Nimrod at this point actually meant a really good marksman, a, a, a good shot. So let's see. Nimrod Wildfire was an illiterate but good-hearted Kentucky congressman who saves the day as part of a farcical plot pitting right-thinking Americans against scheming Europeans. And he would introduce himself as, My name is Nimrod Wildfire, half horse, half alligator, and a touch of the earthquake. That's got the prettiest sister, fastest horse, and ugliest dog in the district, and can outrun, outkick, outjump, knock down, drag out, and whip any man in all cane tuck. I love it. He's a very, very folksy character and totally charmed the New York audiences. They wondered who this play was based on. And of course, this starts spurring the curiosity about who Davy was, because it was very easy to kind of trace back who it was they were talking about. And then I have to read you this quote, because Davy actually did go and see a performance of this play. All right, so I'm going to read you this excerpt from a book. Crockett had gone to see actor James Hackett play the part of Colonel Nimrod Wildfire in the play. The part, as almost everyone knew, had been modeled on Crockett. Frontiersman Wildfire dressed in buckskin and wore a wildcat skin hat. Crockett takes his seat for the performance. No doubt pleased with himself, he looked at Hackett, who was ready to start his imitation of David Crockett. Hackett saw Crockett, the real Crockett, then nodded to David and bowed. And Crockett, dressed like a gentleman, nodded back, rose to his feet, and turned to acknowledge the other spectators, who by this time were clapping for Hackett, Crockett, and the sheer pure theater of that moment. Crockett bowed, Hackett bowed, and an odd fusion took place. Legend and man, myth and reality, backwoodsman Davy Crockett and congressman David Crockett, they had become one and interchangeable. If the word had existed in its modern meaning, which it did not until about 1850, Crockett would have realized that he had become a celebrity. So I just thought that that was kind of a fun incident of him going and seeing this play. <laughs> well, what I thought you were about to say is that when he stood up and turned to acknowledge the audience, they were like, who the fuck are you? <laughs> <laughs> no, he, he was known. He was known. Now, after the success of that play, next came The Life and Adventures of Colonel David Crockett of West Tennessee. This was published in 1833. It ended up being reprinted the same year under the title Sketches and Eccentricities of Colonel David Crockett of West Tennessee. This is an anonymously written biography that's a combination of weird facts and gossip and fiction. It takes a lot of material from newspapers, which, as I mentioned before, depending on which side they were on, they would depict him as just a bumbling, you know, kind of nice idiot, or some crude hillbilly, kind of depending on where they stood on things. So it combined actual facts with some of those newspaper articles, 
added tales of him grinning raccoons out of trees and riding streaks of lightning across the sky. And then this actually flowed into a series of comic almanacs that were published under his name all the way up to 1856 and really created this collection of tall tales about the adventures of Davy as opposed to actual historical David Crockett. So Davy, the play he could deal with, but he hated this biography that was written about him. He decides that he wants to set the record straight, and he works with an associate to write his autobiography. And he did go on kind of a tour to try and promote the book. And this is considered a milestone in the evolution of rural American vernacular humor. And it's not really appreciated until later. He kind of portrays himself as just a good old boy trying to make his way through Washington. He downplayed his political achievements, which we already know he didn't have very many and focused more on either refuting or supporting some of those tall tales that were told in the sketches book and in the play that was satirizing him. It was very self-deprecating, ironic, kind of Mark Twain before Mark Twain style. But what really sealed the deal and made Davy legendary, it was Disney. Kind of like how your story started, talking about the fun little Disney Merry Melodies. Well, Disney featured Davy Crockett in three episodes, which initially aired in 1954. First, there was Davy Crockett, Indian Fighter, then Davy Crockett Goes to Washington, and then Davy Crockett at the Alamo. Were these made to educate the people on a cool dude from history? Not exactly. They did want to present an American folk hero that they could brand, you know, kind of a Paul Bunyan or Daniel Boone figure. And Walt himself wasn't totally convinced about using Davy once they actually started to storyboard some of those episodes. And this quote is just, it was kind of me after reading the life of, of Davy. After a lengthy and dramatic presentation of the storyboards to the boss, Walsh, the producer, recalled that Walt looked at all of this and he said, and I'll never forget this classic line, yeah, but what else did he do? I did find a couple sources which contradicted about whether Davy ended up being a happy accident or if he was meant to promote it, but Disneyland was preparing to open at this time, with Frontierland being one of the five lands within the park. It ended up being all set up and themed basically around Davy and the Wild Frontier. Coonskin caps became the rage, with one source noting that they were selling at a rate of about 5000 per day at one point. Once the episodes aired, of course, there was criticism. Some wondered, kind of like Walt and like me and a few other people, if Davy deserved that level of attention. And a lot of people wondered if what was being portrayed was historically accurate. But of course, that doesn't determine popularity. The episodes were combined into a feature-length movie in the summer of 1955. And Fess Parker and his co-star Buddy Ebsen actually toured the United States, Europe, and Japan. By the end of 1955, Americans had purchased over $300 million worth of Davy Crockett merchandise. And I read something that just listed endless things that they branded with Davy Crockett. It was incredible. But as far as his image and the whole coonskin cap, there's not really a whole lot of evidence to show that he wore that. Of course, he did wear a cap, but whether or not it was actually the famous coonskin cap and how often he wore it, or if he wore it just for his portrait, is something that people debate. So to conclude, a few other historians also noted that nothing about Davy was necessarily significant enough for him to be the legend he is. Sorry. 
I know some people might be mad about that, but here, I'll just quote this for you. There is not enough reality in the Davy Crockett legend to make him really worth remembering. The author's main concern, speaking of the author of the article, was Disney's impact on historical canonization. He was disinterred one night last winter by two of the mid-century's most formidable influences, Walt Disney and television, or vice versa, and that was that. The next morning, the Crockett saga was up and around doing nicely, and Boone, meaning Daniel Boone, like the archetype for the frontiersman, an authentic pioneered hero, was still in his grave, undisturbed, though possibly whirling. So, yeah, that's the legend, which I don't know. I don't know, you guys. I think he's just a Disney character. And the marksman, here's, I would be fine if they lumped him in with, here's a list of people who are at the Alamo. And then if he was mentioned in the context of experts, like these Wild West type, Wild Frontier marksmen that were just exceptional, like Annie Oakley, you know, if he was mentioned along with that crowd. Yeah. But yeah, otherwise that's, yeah, I did, I never understood and now I really don't understand <laughs> why he's such a big deal. But Disney. Now, I mean, I do understand because Disney. Mm-hmm. That's the answer. Everything is Disney. I think they were just looking for somebody who was real, who was close to hitting the target of the legends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of the feel that I got. That, Like I said, it was someone that they could brand. And I don't know what the other circumstances would be for other frontiersmen that they did not end up using but yeah it just seemed like he fit enough of the of the checks and maybe and perhaps it's just comes down to being as simple as documentation there was just more documentation on him Mm -hmm. versus others that they might have considered right but yeah other than that you know but i just i would have i would have who am i to second guess disney i would have gone for you know the wild bill hickox and the annie oakley's i would have made them the focus but you know what well, do that's I why you're not a disney heiress well I guess. that's you're damn right that's <laughs> i ain't i don't know and if somebody has a strong opinion and i missed something significant or was wrong please tell me but you know otherwise uh yeah i don't know that i i have said what my conclusion is about davy he did not kill a bear when he was three no at all no. Not a chance. <laughs> Let's see what else is in the ballad. It's a, it's so long. It is so long. Like, I looked up the lyrics, and I'm like, okay, okay, okay. Oh, my God, it keeps going. It oh just keeps my going. Oh, my God, it keeps <laughs> going. You guys have to see this. <laughs> but, of course, you know, he's king of the wild frontier. I think maybe he's also notable because of his, you know, his stance against Andrew Jackson. But I imagine a few people... Oh, it, it wasn't just him. <laughs> it wasn't just him. Not that I could name yeah. him, but I assure you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I hate so, Andrew Jackson. And to this day, there is much hatred for Andrew Jackson. What a piece of shit, man. Yeah. And you know what? Okay, so I've had the Ballad of Davy Crockett stuck in my head, mm-hmm. which, of course, I, you know, I really only know, like, the first part, which I shouldn't even know. It's just one of those things that I think just you end up having inserted into your head at some point. But it keeps melding with the Beverly Hillbillies theme song. Yep. <laughs> I can see that. I can see that. Absolutely. And I'm just like, God damn it. Oh, it's been bad. My mind has just been loopy. 
All right. You think we're done? I think I think that's about it. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. And keep listening if you want to know how to get hold of us and where to find us on social media. The little outro that's coming up will tell you how. And for all our American listeners, happy Thanksgiving. Hope you eat a lot and do not gather in large groups, please and thank you. Yeah, be safe. It ain't worth seeing grandma and grandpa if you end up killing them. That's the lesson to take away. Happy virus day. (laughs) (laughs) And this is where the catchphrase goes. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. As a reminder, you can check out our sources for each of the episodes at show notes, along with any supplemental things we think you might enjoy. Visit us on our blog at youtotallymadethatup.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Twitter at YTMTUPodcast and on Instagram at youtotallymadethatup. Feel free to contact us on those platforms, and you can also email us. That address is youtotallymadethatup at gmail.com.